All right, good morning, everyone. We're at 8 o'clock, so we'll get started here. Has American Christianity failed? Pastor Wolfmuller thinks so. What do you think? <laughs> we'll <laughs> right. We'll be, uh, we'll, we'll be continuing the chapter on good works. Aren't you amazed at how long it is? It's great. It's great. We actually, as Lutherans, take good works very seriously. And as promised, we're going to skip ahead just a little bit into the text and get into the discussion of conscience. Wolfmuller uh, largely sees this in the paradigm of kind of the legal scheme or legal motif. And so we'll be taking a look at that with him on page 158. Before we begin, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, on page 158, you can see one of uh, a number of uh, quotations from the scriptures that speak of conscience. 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 19. Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, we often focus on holding faith, but not often on conscience. And conscience is really where Lutheran theology shines and outshines any other confession. When we pay attention to uh, conscience, we're paying, attention to an es- we're paying attention to an essential part of who we are, how God has made us, and this gift he's given to us. Let's let Wolfmuller do the heavy lifting here. Uh, So just beginning at the top of 158, the conscience is incredibly important in biblical theology. We've already discussed the importance of the conscience in receiving the comfort of the gospel. The conscience is also vitally important to our life of love and good works. Paul writes to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, can I point out some things? Just tangential. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. So apparently it is possible for Christians to have a pure heart. So, love that issues from a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, again, tangentially, when we talk about faith, we can identify two different ways of talking about faith. And I'll give you the Latin terms and the distinction. You don't have to memorize them. There won't be any quiz. But fetus quae and fetus qua. Okay, fetus is quai, uh, excuse me, fetus is faith. Fetus quai is the content of that faith. So you might think of like the Apostles' Creed. 
the, the body of doctrine. That's where St. Jude says that this is the faith handed down to the church once and for all. That's the content of the faith, fetus quae. Fetus qua is the faith of the heart that receives the content. So there's these two different ways of looking at faith. And really in the Christian, there are two sides of the same coin. Because if you have fetus qua, faith, what is it in? It's in the fetus quae, or else it's no qua. See how much fun you can have with this. So this is a helpful distinction because you run across this biblically. uh, And a sincere faith here would be an unhypocritical faith. That is, confessing rightly the content of the faith and holding that in a good conscience, without any deceitfulness, um, holding that in sincerity, without any obfuscation or trickery. So, That's the idea here of a sincere faith. So you have, again, the aim of our charge is love. And this love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So you've got these three things from which love is issuing forth. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. All right, continuing with Wolfmuller. And this is a quotation, by the way, of 1 Timothy 1.5. Continuing with Wolf Mueller, he asks, What does Paul mean by a good conscience? And how can we live before God in this manner? Our conscience, remember, is a gift of God, a part of our created nature. It is our innate and natural ability to know the law. We might think of the conscience as an internal referee calling us out when we break the rules and sin against our Lord or our neighbors. When it functions properly, (laughs) those are all important words, when it functions properly, our conscience troubles us when we do something wrong. It pushes us to repentance and trust in the Lord's mercy and grace. Our conscience doesn't always function properly. Like any referee, it sometimes makes the wrong call. The devil is constantly attacking our conscience, tempting it to make the wrong call, to become calloused or overbearing. And by the way, there's a distinction there. I think he's going to flesh it out, but if not, you can ask me to come back because those are in some ways opposed to each other. A bad conscience distorts our understanding of God and his word, our neighbor, and even ourselves. Which, by the way, I think in America so often we say, I'm in a bad mood. And while I don't want to totally negate whatever that might mean, very frequently it would be more accurate for us to say, I have a bad conscience. You can be in a bad mood because maybe you're simply tired or exhausted or hungry or something like that. Uh, that. That might be a way to carve out this language of a bad mood. But very frequently at the root of a bad mood is a bad conscience. How so? 
a right conscience would ideally be able to endure things such as not having enough sleep, not having enough food, and still remain charitable, that is to say, filled with caritas or love. Okay, so, so often I think what is mistaken for a bad mood is actually a bad conscience, and if we are capable of self-examination and deepening that self-examination, very frequently we get to the root of our bad mood is some sin that we've committed that we haven't come to terms with or some sin or set of sins that's been committed against us that we have not yet dealt with. These are the kinds of things that can defile our conscience. See if that doesn't resonate, that thought, as you go through life. I think it will. So, having lost my place now, (laughs) sorry about that, the devil um, is constantly attacking our conscience, tempting it to make the wrong call to become calloused or overbearing. All right, so there's two aspects that um, we need to be cautious of. What happens when the conscience becomes calloused? Then it is not going to accuse us or stop us where God's word would accuse us or stop us. So the conscience has become calloused, unfeeling, unsensitive, not properly sensitive anyway. And then the opposite of that is overbearing, where the conscience begins to convict us on things that the scripture doesn't convict us on, the things that God's law and God's word leave us free to do, the conscience swoops in and convicts us. That's an overbearing conscience. So you can see that these, these are two ways in which the conscience can malfunction. Skipping down a little bit more. A bad conscience, Wolf Mueller writes, always stands in the way of repentance and good works. When we know the dangers to our conscience, we can fight back at the devil, quote, holding faith and a good conscience, end quote. 1 Timothy 1.19. We will consider three dangers to our conscience and how we counter them with the Lord's word. The Holy Spirit with the word of God trains our conscience to function properly. All right, so we're going to look at these three then um, in depth. A calloused conscience, an evil conscience, and a counterfeit conscience. There are probably other ways to present this, other ways to sort of skin this cat, so to speak, but here are the three ways that Wolf Mueller has chosen. All right, before we uh, dive in, any thoughts, any questions or comments? I see a, a few. So from that passage that you had uh, read, I guess Wolf Mueller quotes it, um, so that he sets forth the heart and then the conscience as if these things... Well, I guess my question is, would the conscience be rightly seen as proper to our mind or our intellect, or is it, in fact, a feature of our heart? Or, like, how do we understand where that properly resides? It's a metaphysical place within us. <laughs> in many respects, um, in many respects, the conscience is at the very heart of a human being. And some have even articulated it this way. I don't know if I fully agree with this yet. That the, that the conscience is analogous to where the, the heart of the human being touches God. 
What makes sense about that is that the conscience rightly operating is from God and is identical to God's will, to God's law. Does that make sense? Now, that conscience, though, can become distorted in a person. We've seen two different ways, calloused and overbearing. Those are maybe the two chief categories we'd think about. And so it can, it can distort that. But the way the person himself understands that he's unable to distinguish that from God. So this is where... Um, you know, even to some degree, like civil law has said, you can't make someone do something against conscience. You have, for example, conscientious objectors to going to war or something like this. The idea is that for that person, um, it's, it is as if God were saying in their conscience. Okay? Now, we can see how com- complicated that gets because does that accurately reflect God's will or not? Has their conscience been damaged, calloused, or overbearing? And that conscience needs to get set right. How does that conscience get set right and reflect God? by being informed? So the conscience is ever in need of being informed by God's word so that it can be formed by God's word. Now, what does the world do as the antithesis to God's word? It is constantly malforming or deforming the conscience. And this is happening on a very, very deep level in us. This is why, for example, you can't actually sit and watch four hours of CNN and four hours of Fox News and come out unscathed because you go, yeah, I'm still a Christian. Your conscience has been pummeled by a view of the world and it has been pummeled by the, by the sins of the world, and something has happened in your conscience. Usually, if we just use Wolf Mueller's two polar opposites here, you become calloused. I think that's most of what happens in our country, is you become calloused, out of necessity, but callous nonetheless, so that we can, without any emotion whatsoever, read of millions of babies being aborted or um, people being shot in a church or whatever the case may be, we just pass it by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what else is new? Um, that, is, that is a way in which our conscience is affected. Um, but our conscience can also become overbearing in this process, too, where we become hypercritical of our enemies and hypercritical such that we dehumanize them and see ourselves as self-righteous and all of this. Okay, so the conscience is, to, to kind of go back to, usually considered to be at the very heart of the person, at the heart of their soul. Maybe even so close as to be that part that is most closely connected to God, even in a fallen human being. It's just that that conscience, like an organ in your body that gets abused, malfunctions, doesn't work properly. That's the best I can do for you on that. If you come up with or find a greater answer, let me know. I'm all ears. Please. Why don't you go ahead? Why don't you go ahead, and then we'll... uh... Well, I I was just going to... Maybe it's early to mention this, but we're talking about a relationship between us through our conscience and God. Mm -hmm. But our neighbor uh, fits into this sometime, and I wanted to just ask, is it an error for our neighbor to come in and act as our conscience? Um, I know biblically we're called to come alongside someone if we see a sin. Uh, This may happen later in our reading, but if we could 
fold that in later on. Where, what role does our neighbor play in guiding and directing us to what God's will is in our life? Yeah, thank you for that. That's a great question. And again, it's a, there's a more complicated and nuanced answer to be had, but I fear that that would take me a long time. Let me try to just answer simply. And that would be that the, the idea of conscience is very simple and very complex, but simple in this way, that there is only one properly ordered conscience, and that's the conscience ordered in accordance with God's will, with God's word, with God's law. That's it. So if your neighbor is calling your conscience back to that, they're doing you a service. If they're calling you away from that, they're doing you a disservice. And they're damaging your conscience. Now, the conscience is so important in salvation because, and this kind of takes us back to, remember when we studied Luther's Only the Decalogue is Eternal? And you really go through this. But the... What the, what the law comes and does is accuses the conscience, and the conscience like goes, oh yes, my goodness, I can't believe, right? And that's the power of the law to sort of correct the conscience, so that then the conscience attacks you with the law, and that's at the essence of repentance. That's, at the, that's sort of, the to be very technical about it, that's the precondition of faith. Then, God willing, what follows is the gospel, and the conscience is set free from its sin, set free from the accusation. The person is set free from the accusation of the conscience. All is made pure and clean and right. Faith on account of a righteousness, not our own, but the righteousness of Christ credited to us, becomes that which the conscience grabs a hold of and is sustained by. So, yeah, this is very important. So the deadening of the conscience, part and parcel of why our Lord says, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, because you do great damage to people in in tearing their conscience away from the objective reality of God's word. And you you do great damage to that very instrument through which the precondition of salvation is worked. The law coming and causing repentance or contrition or sorrow. Now, if that's all that happens is repentance or contrition or sorrow, then you might have some. You might actually just have someone like um, Judas or Saul or uh, uh, Cain, maybe to some degree Esau. Uh, these figures in the Bible who they sorrow but they don't really truly believe in God and have that conversion where they turn away from their sins and the accusation of the conscience to the righteousness of Christ freely given, the forgiveness of sins, etc. So yeah, so this is, um, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And we could go further. Uh, obviously, maybe we will as we get into Romans and what God teaches about the conscience there and this idea of giving over to sin. That's part and parcel of the conscience itself no longer reflecting who God is and what God's will is. And so a person just becomes perpetually more lost and incapable of being, of coming out of it via their conscience. Please. Just add to it then, in this context then, the role of a parent uh, is much like a neighbor then coming to, to the child given them by God and drawing their conscience or training their conscience to be mm-hmm. in consistent with God's will. So that's 
Okay. Arguably, that's the most important thing. The single most important thing that parents do is inform the conscience of their child and then teach their child what to do with a bad conscience. Confess your sins and be forgiven. Forgive those who have sinned against you by remembering how you yourself have been forgiven, etc. So you're teaching kids how to, how to maintain right conscience and deal with conscience once it goes badly. That's at the heart of what it is to be a parent. Mm-hmm. Please. Going back to when you first started, when you said, uh, <clears throat> you commented on the, on the pure heart, mm-hmm. and you kind of said, well, you know, uh, <laughs> somewhat pure. I forget how you said it. But at any rate, doesn't God see us through his eyes with a pure heart all the time. Mm-hmm. So from God's standpoint, we have a pure heart. Mm-hmm. We know that we don't. Mm-hmm. But thank goodness God does yeah. Yeah. see us I, that way. Right. And that, yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's an approach to you know what we often call forensic justification, this idea that God... You know, though we are guilty of sin and though sin is in our heart, God declares us righteous, not on account that we've suddenly have become righteous in ourselves, but on account of Christ and account of his gracious proclamation. So the forensic righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us freely by grace, that's true. But I don't think that that's what St. Paul is doing in this verse. Um, the reason for that, and, and in other verses having to do with a pure heart, uh, the Beatitudes come to mind where Jesus is talking about a pure heart also. Those who have a pure heart will see God. Blessed are they with a pure heart, for they shall see God. A pure heart, um, and, and take a look again, if you will, at the second paragraph on page 158. Now, if we need to get into open our Bibles, we, actually, we can to get a little more context. But look at what... Um, now, St. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor. So the aim of our charge, that is the aim of the pastoral office, okay, is love that issues from a pure heart. Now, if this is something already given to us in Christ Jesus that we already have already, then in what sense is this the aim of our charge? So the aim of our charge is love that issues forth from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So when we look at purity of heart and goodness of conscience and sincerity of faith, these are things that we either possess or don't possess. And of course we're going to say these are gifts of the Holy Spirit. But So you might possess a good conscience or a bad conscience, a sincere faith or an insincere faith, a pure heart or an impure heart. Okay? If we were to define what a pure heart is on this level, we would say a heart that, that pleads guilty before God of all sins, a heart that trusts Christ and Christ alone, but also a heart that desires to bear the fruits of repentance. That's a pure heart. A heart that is just, it's right. It's as right as you can get this side of heaven. That's a pure heart. And we strive then to have this pure heart. That's really the aim of all theology. It's the aim of all preaching. It's the aim of the sacraments. It's the aim of the pastoral task. It's the, as Paul says, it's the aim of everything. 
is that we would maintain within ourselves and or have within ourselves maintained purity of heart, goodness of conscience, sincerity of faith. So God's word works these things in us. It's a monergistic thing, but it's something that pastors, as those who have oversight, and Christians um, need to be aware of. So could you have an impure heart? Absolutely. What does David say? Create in me a clean heart. Now, if this is an, so, he doesn't have a clean heart. I have a dirty heart, an impure heart, um, and I confess that. But what am I asking you to do? Now, it's outside of my power to have a clean heart. That's why I have to ask you, O oh Lord, to create in me a clean heart. But David isn't thinking, like, create in me a clean heart when I get to heaven. Creating me a clean heart and when I'm re- resurrected from the dead, creating me a clean heart right now. And that clean heart is parallel with a right spirit. You see, so he's confessing, I don't have a right spirit. I don't have a pure heart. I want you, O oh Lord, to uh, restore these things unto me. So this is a state of being a state of having a purity of heart and a state which we can fall out of and be restored to. So I think of, um, you know, I think of, of, if you think of David's sin, the magnitude of his sin, the adultery that led to murder, that led to impenitence, etc., etc., then you can see how the purity of heart is lost in the extreme. The good conscience is lost in the extreme. The sincerity of faith is lost in the extreme. Was David praising God? that very evening after he had sent Uriah to his death. That's insincerity of faith, you see. So in, in someone like David, where the sin is so manifest, these things become very clear to us. And we can just simply by degree say, well, on any given day, it may be more subtle in my case, but I can recognize where I've lost purity of heart, goodness of conscience, or sincerity of faith. Does that, does that make sense? There is this internal life that we have to pay attention to. And that, I mean, astonishingly, that comes from the scriptures. <laughs> in fact, it's everywhere in the scriptures. So you've got the external reality of God declaring us righteous, but you've got this internal reality of like your actual spiritual health on any given day or at any given time. All right. <clears throat> so any other... Uh, I think we had all the original hands. Have I created more hands? More, <laughs> more questions? <laughs> I hope not. I hope I've uh, explained everything clearly enough. I know we're not used to thinking in these terms as 21st century Lutherans, but, you know, we need to. The scriptures speak these ways. All right, so danger number one, a calloused conscience. Through continued sinning, uh, yeah, I would just nuance this a little bit. Through continued sinning, particularly against conscience. Through continued sinning, our conscience becomes calloused or hardened. My analogy here is always one of like physical health, because we're really talking about spiritual health. So it's like if you abuse your lungs, if you just you know smoke cigarette after cigarette after cigarette, and you abuse your lungs... You're not going to be surprised when you run up the stairs and you're out of breath. Your lungs aren't functioning the way they were intended. A parallel thing happens if you continue to sin against your conscience. Against Eventually your conscience becomes weak and incapable 
And indeed, your conscience kind of does this thing of like accepting it and then even celebrating. <laughs> we've, we've seen that slippery slope on the macro level of our nation, where things that were once astonished, astonishingly evil and cast off to the corners were then sort of tolerated in the darkness and then uh, accepted and, and approved, and now they're being championed. We've got flags and parades, and you, see, you can see the way this works. It works in that macrocosm. It works the same way in the microcosm of the human being. It's why it's important to pay attention to conscience and not violate it. And it's why even, truthfully speaking, and St. Paul talks about this wonderfully in his epistles, but <clears throat> even where conscience is um, overbearing, where conscience is condemning someone over the top of the Word of God or in a place where the Word of God doesn't condemn, you still have to be careful of not violating conscience because you're violating that instrument. And that instrument, if you know, so let's say that somebody has a, a compunction against um, eating meat, you know, and, and so we're going to eat only vegetables. And it's against my conscience to eat meat. Paul says, well, to that person, eating meat is in fact a sin and we ought not trample their conscience. Because that organ is, in some respects, indiscriminate. It doesn't recognize if you trample it here or trample it here. A trampling is a trampling. A cigarette's a cigarette. The lung is destroyed. The conscience is uh, rendered less effective. So, Properly speaking, as we take one who is weak and make them strong, we want their conscience to be informed by the law of God, not by, by the objective standard of the law of God, not by whatever other thoughts they have. But it doesn't mean that we can trample conscience, even if conscience is overbearing. Does that make sense? No. Okay. No? <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Good. We'll get you the microphone. So I don't, uh, maybe it'll be better for me if I answer a question you're not asking. Uh, it's so hard because we fall into either being have the conscien- the callous conscience or a overbearing con- conscience. Mm-hmm. Who has that sanity to determine or, or to stay in in the right conscience mm-hmm. position? Because if we are not capable to to have a clean heart or mm-hmm. ha- I don't know we we're not capable to any of this so how can we stand into into that sanity that balance mm-hmm. yeah it's a great question um part of what we have done is we've made everything too big and we think in these gigantic absolutist terms when we do our theology what we really need to do is shrink everything down and think more like our Lord instructs us to think, and that's on a daily basis. So I take this in in part from uh, our Lord's words, sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. I would be much healthier spiritually if instead of always thinking about my sin, which is from my conception to my death, I thought about my sins, which are the actual, how do I do this? And here the catechism gives us the biblical answer, and we've covered that in the classes before. You you need to shrink everything down and stop thinking of sin and your whole life and your whole being and think of from when I woke up this morning 
and made the sign of the cross, presumably in sincerity of faith, with a good conscience that clings to the righteousness of Christ given me in baptism, with a pure heart, acknowledging that I'm a forgiven sinner and rising as God's child to live my life here as God's child. And if, I, and if I'm rising in the day without the pure heart, the good conscience, or the um, sincere faith, then guess when the time to deal with that is? Right there. Via David, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Renew in me a right spirit. Here are, your, here are my sins. Here are the things that are separating me from you. Here are the things that I don't understand. Here are the prayers that I've said that you haven't answered. Sustain me, forgive me, um, renew a right spirit within me that I can live as your child. And then, and then again, we make everything small. So it's from the morning prayer to the breakfast prayer and the breakfast prayer to the lunch prayer, and the lunch prayer to the dinner prayer, um, the dinner prayer to the evening prayer. And when everything is small and we're paying attention, I, I've, I become increasingly, I increasingly lean toward the idea that this is mostly what Jesus is talking about when he says, stay awake. <laughs> He's talking about, about actually being awake in your life as you move from one prayer to the next, as you move from one meeting with him to the next. And so that if you fall, it's, it's mu- if you're living this way, it's much harder to like slip and commit adultery. <laughs> it's much harder to, whoops, I, I fell and robbed a bank. Uh, you know, you're, you're much more guarded from manifest sin. And frequently what happens um, is it's the breakdown of these things first that then precipitate a kind of avalanche to where you're sleeping with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. That usually doesn't just happen, you know, um, between dinner and evening prayer. So we need to realize there's kind of an organic and ontological connection between all of these things, we need to slow down and just look at our lives and um, look at our lives as piece by piece, confessing our sins regularly to the Lord as we meet with him in prayer at these times throughout the day. And in that way, we're precisely maintaining a pure heart and a uh, sincere faith and a good conscience. If any of those is ever going bad on account of our sinful thoughts, words, and deeds, immediately confess it, receive that forgiveness, receive his gospel, and continue on. If you fall in some manifest way, yeah, well, maybe that needs to be dealt with in a very manifest way. Maybe that's the particular time in which you call the pastor and say, I need confession and absolution. I slipped in a major way, and I need... um, the absolution of Christ for that specific sin. That's in fact pretty much exactly what David receives, what jogs him out of his impure heart when Nathan comes and tells him the parable and he self-accuses and then he confesses his sin and Nathan absolves him. Okay, so that would be my answer. Slow everything down, make everything small, start paying attention, start being awake. We're not built for these gigantic categories alone. The gigantic categories help us articulate the Christian faith and articulate the boundaries and principles with which we all as Christians live our lives. 
but they're not but they're not made for us in our daily lives in the sense that they can have a distortive effect if if all we're thinking about is my sin then every time i confess even if that's just on a sunday morning before the service i'm just going to be thinking of my sin and if pastor rody ever you know walked up to me and said well what sin in particular you'd be like i don't know you don't know? You don't know You don't know any sins from this past week? You don't know any sins today? You don't know where your thoughts, words, or deeds faltered? No, I don't. Well, that might be something to pay attention to. That might be a way in which you can begin to grow spiritually and or stay awake, be watchful, be vigilant. The Lord could come at any moment. If we're living in this small way, you can see how Jesus' words suddenly make sense. Whereas if we're trying to think in these big bombastic terms, Jesus saying stay awake means what to me? I don't have the foggiest. Stay in the faith? Okay. Check, check. Guess I can ignore those words. You see, so our Lord has, um, I think, much to say to us if we open our eyes to the importance of what Paul says here, the purity of heart, goodness of conscience, sincerity of faith. Please. I'm thinking, to me, one of the greatest examples of a callous conscience is when somebody says, well, okay, I don't have to be in church every Sunday. Mm, Absolutely. And the longer you stay away... Absolutely. And you're not hearing, I need confession and absolution, I don't hear the word, it's just... Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, this is, um, you, you, I think, have your, have your fingers right on the pulse. And everybody thinks that pastors care about this because they just want people in the pews and numbers and money and all of this stuff. And it's like, yeah, worldly pastors want that. But real pastors recognize that if you're not here for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're not here for the presence of the Lord, something has gone terribly wrong in you. Now, I, I'm not trying to be you know, super legalistic about that. I understand there are like, Times where that can't happen or, uh, you know, physical disabilities where we want to be there but we can't. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person who goes, it would be better for me to sleep in than do this. Or it would be better for me to harbor my grudge against the pastor or the church or that person in the church than to go deal with it so that I can be with my Lord. I, it's, it's profoundly devastating. Um, remarkable to me in my pastoral ministry, too, is that frequently... It is, and you can see how these two things are, are almost from an earthly view ironic, but from a more spiritual or heavenly view, like perfectly fitting. And that's that usually what comes along with me not going to church is some accusation about uh, the, a problem with the pastor or the church. So that, you, you know, so, so as a pastor, I'll often hear like, well, you preached such and such, and that's why I'm not coming to church. Okay, so since you have the spiritual theological high ground and clearly see a sin that I do not, you're punishing me by not going to church. Which church are you going to? Well, none. Got it. Got it. It's not spiritual high ground at all, is it? It's just an excuse for the flesh to have its way. It's a bad conscience and a falling away from their own ability to walk with purity of heart, goodness of conscience, sincerity of faith. I sometimes think that maybe I'm going to get around to this. I've got so many things I want to teach. The Lord's going to have to keep me alive a really long time. Um, Mercifully, I kind of hope he won't. (laughs) Ready to go home anytime. But the... uh, but the yeah, this is um, 
the idea of what to do when a pastor does in fact sin against you or you think he has. What to do when a fellow Christian does in fact sin against you or you think he has. What to do when, a, when you think the congregation as a whole has made a misstep or at least you think it has. What to do, because these are things we never talk about, and these are things that almost always lead to people falling away and not coming on Sunday morning and ultimately falling away from the Lord, which is that's what's telling to me. It's ironic on an earthly standpoint that you who would accuse are not even with our Lord anymore. Um, but from a heavenly standpoint, you see how these two things, are they make perfect sense. It's a major spiritual problem in that person that's manifesting itself. Yeah. Please, yes, please. I was hoping you'd speak a little bit about the conscience that has been red-pilled. So when you are now away from the calloused conscience that you are completely asleep and anything goes and you're good and mm-hmm. rock on, mm-hmm. now you're awake yeah. and everything you see is sin and disordered. And so mm-hmm. it feels like you first need to get your own ship going in the right direction. But then the concentric circle, I always use the words concentric, sorry. Uh, The circles around you, you start seeing the sin in your family and the sin in your friends and then the sin in the world. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how to handle all that? And then you were the one that brought up the flag. Next month is Gay Pride Month. And so when you're awake like that, you start to if you have people in your life that are trying to change your opinion about things, how do you rightly stand your ground? And I don't know, you can't change everybody, but you got to at least know what you stand for. Yeah. I mean, these are really big questions and there's not going to be a simple answer. That's not going to sound like a platitude. Um, I think so there, there are dangers to that feeling of kind of like awakening and, and the dangers to be aware of are a kind of self-righteousness and a kind of um, also uh, this sense of like, now I've got it, I'll never lose it. Um, and, and, and I'm not accusing you of any of these things, to be sure. I'm, these are things that um, when someone sometimes is like really on fire for the Lord, I get a little nervous because I've seen that fire, as bright as it is, burn out just as quickly. So my, my counsel is, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And, uh, and don't burn yourself out and take your time. And um, then to give you a more classical answer, this is, where, this is one of the ways that the church fathers talk about uh, tears. They maybe go over the top here and there. <laughs> they talk about tears as a second baptism. Um, I think we can forgive them for kind of going over the top because what they, what they really mean is um, as you're awake and you see the world differently, the immediate reaction to that very frequently is just to weep for yourself and where you've been, to weep for your family and where they've been, to weep for the world, to weep for the state of the church. Um, and that, uh, that's something that really strikes me as a pastor because sometimes, you know, uh, the church in America has to present itself like it's completely successful and doing everything right. And when you, ha- when you kind of get red-pilled to the church, <laughs> irrespective of the denomination, you, look at, you kind of get red-pilled to every denomination and you just go, Lord have mercy, we're in spiritual ruins. There's nothing. And 
Um, I think I think then the great joy in that is to uh, to kind of do a judo reverse on the devil, and that is where where any any amount of righteousness can be broken by one sin. You know, you can. You can not fall into temptation for 10 years and then fall into temptation one time and that's it, as if those 10 years were nothing. So the fragility of good. Well, the reverse is also true if we pay attention. And that is in the hegemony of evil to not think so much about, hey, I'm going to fix everything, but just, to f- but just to start to be like this. One good thing. One cup of water in the name of Jesus to this child. One good deed, one prayer when I would have been wasting my time otherwise. One, one small gift of alms that I'm going to not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. I'm going to give it and forget it and never think about it again. That's, that's kind of how you break the hegemony of the devil. Again, what are we seeing in this? It's not grandiose. It's small. It's tiny. It's the kind of stuff that happens at the dining room table, in the bedroom if you're married. It's just small um, little acts of defiance against the tyranny of the devil. And, and those things can have a tendency to snowball and, uh, and become bigger in themselves. So, um, I don't know. I hope I've given you some insight. Um, and thank you so much for being transparent. By the way, with your transparency, I, I was not speaking um, particularly to your circumstances in the least, trying to give a general treatment for many who find themselves in sort of a broader treatment of how the church has spoken to people in that, in that context. So. I'm going through this process of my mind too, and I'm. One of the things that hit me at the beginning of class is warfare, and I'm thinking of this analogy. Learning through this is that when you're in a war, I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis fighting mm-hmm. in World War One. Mm-hmm. He's there in a trench or whatever. He has to do his little thing wherever he is, even though there's a huge war going on yeah. around him. And I really appreciate your saying, you know, yeah. just right. what is in front of you. Yeah, it's a terrible corny song, and probably by even saying it, I'm going to put the earworm. You'll be singing it to yourself all week. I apologize. But remember that song, I get knocked down, but I get up again? <laughs> um, this is how I think of put on the full armor of God. Uh, Paul has to tell us to put on the full armor of God. It's not as if you can just put it on once. (laughs) There's no Christian on the face of the earth who hasn't put on the full armor of God and gotten freight trained by a demon riding a war elephant. (laughs) And the the armor of God goes everywhere, and you're in the gutter, and you're picking yourself up saying, I'll never be a good warrior again. You know, I've lost, I'm defeated. Uh, No, that's that's a wrong way of thinking about it. Uh, What makes a Christian undefeated and undefeatable is that he always rises in Christ Jesus in that baptismal grace again and again and again. And you fell into a great sin like David or a great sin like Solomon or a great sin like Peter or a great sin like any of the major figures in the scriptures. What do you do? Put back on the armor of God. Get back up again and prepare to stand. Pay attention to how you lost last time and figure out how to win this time and so forth. But that's the, the Christian battle isn't one of like, you know, championing around just victory after victory. And sometimes that's how the evangelical, I think, church in America presents it. Like, how are you living that victorious life? 
<laughs> I mean, it gives us the idea like you should be undefeated against the devil. You should be winning all the time. That's such a superficial understanding of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is you are going to get trashed in all kinds of different ways and get destroyed in all kinds of different ways. But like, like the movie Rocky, <laughs> you just keep getting back up. You just keep getting back up. You keep brushing yourself off in the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, and you just keep fighting. You just won't go away until God finally brings you home. And that's the, the, I think that's the beauty of the Christian warfare, and that is truly how we become victorious. Uh, or as, remember how that refrain in Revelation where Jesus says to the one who overcomes, okay, I will give, and then he gives, he talks about the gift. But that overcoming, it isn't simplistic the way we think of it. Like, hey, my NFL team was undefeated. There's no such thing as an undefeated saint in that sense. There's just an undefeated saint in the deeper sense of we overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony and by the fact that we endured and fought and agonized and ran uh, in this race uh, that Christ has given us, this combat that Christ has given us. I'm sorry for the long answer, but yeah. Yeah, It really really makes more three-dimensional the idea of spiritual warfare, I think. Okay, shall uh, shall we go on? So, uh, a calloused conscience, and again, we, uh, well, let's just, I I think we maybe started this. Through continued sinning, our conscience becomes calloused or hardened. Paul calls this a seared conscience, 1 Timothy 4.2. Like scar tissue, a calloused conscience has lost the sensation of guilt. It has ceased to feel the pain of sin. The hardening of a conscience is especially dangerous with habitual sins and addictions. The first time we commit a particular sin, our conscience is troubled. The next time, it is slightly bothered. Each sin registers less and less until finally we've forgotten the thing is even a sin. It could be missing church, living together before marriage, speaking behind someone's back, holding a few dollars back when paying taxes, being angry with your children, or whatever. Addictions and repeated and habitual sin deaden the conscience. And if you're the exception to that, well, then you have uh, to simply praise God that he's made you the exception and he's kept your conscience aware and awake and alive and not deadened or calloused um, even as you've engaged in this warfare. All right. Wolfmiller continues, the Lord has help for us. His antidote to a calloused conscience is the Ten Commandments. Notice that. His antidote to a calloused conscience is the Ten Commandments. This is where I think Wolfmiller's got a brilliant point. It's a point that I think Luther does in the large catechism. The Ten Commandments can actually be an antidote. They can actually bring healing. If we see the Ten Commandments only as a ministry of death, we're seeing it only in the paradigm of justification. We're ignoring how the commandments work and function in the life of one who is redeemed and saved by the condemnation of the law, made new. Here the law can be a healing antidote. Okay? So um, his antidote to a calloused conscience is the Ten Commandments. The Lord's law works like the video review in a football game. If the referee makes the wrong call, it is examined and reversed. If our conscience does not accuse us of a sin, the law corrects the call. 
Or to put it another way, the law works like a meat tenderizer (laughs) that softens our conscience and breaks our heart over sin. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If we have missed church for months and our conscience has stopped getting after us, the third commandment still stands. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. If we have a habit of speaking poorly of our neighbor, the eighth commandment corrects our conscience. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. When the sexual sin has wrecked our conscience such that we don't know the trouble we are in, the sixth commandment reveals to us what our conscience does not. You shall not commit adultery. The ten commandments continue to speak even after our conscience has gone mute. And when we consider our life through the lens of the Ten Commandments, the Holy Spirit tenderizes our consciences, shows us our sin and our need for the Lord's forgiveness, and revives our conscience to do its proper work. Okay. So in a sense, like what immediately alleviates or in a sense like stops the bleeding of the conscience is the gospel. The free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. But then that conscience needs to be formed, lest it just sin again and again and again. And that conscience is formed by God's law, you see. So there's a healing gospel and a formation law. This, by the way, is why Luther spends so much time in the catechism on the law positively. These are the things to do. He's straightening out the conscience. It's also why, and, 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 um, you know, I've done this with some success, (laughs) I'm on a good streak right now, knock on wood. <laughs> but when you wake up in the morning, so the, the, the small catechism says, you know, make the sign of the cross in remembrance of your baptism. And then at least in, in one place, it gives, it gives this thing that you can do. You can do the Ten Commandments, then the Creed, then the Our Father. You can add a psalm or a different prayer or something like that. But that is the structure. So when you wake up in the morning and you say the Ten Commandments, it's not to find sins you committed yesterday, that should have been dealt with yesterday, it's to inform the conscience for today. That's the reason. So the conscience goes out into the world informed that this is what God wants to do. So this is the baptismal life of rising every day and having our consciences healed in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, baptism, and formed by baptism into the way of the law, the, the will of God for our lives. Yes, please. I hope this is fairly coherent. Okay, I'm thinking of raising a child or, or mm-hmm. what we've all gone through. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the commandments are like equivalent of natural law, mm-hmm. and you impose this on children, mm-hmm. say, don't do this, don't do that. And that's the what is it, the uh, use of the Ten Commandments as a curb and a guide. But if we don't take the next step where the commandments are a mirror, Mm -hmm. which I I think that is absent in a large part of our culture Mm -hmm. in education, Mm -hmm. I think just the external use of the... uh, urban guide mm-hmm. just makes morality seem like a power grab mm-hmm. and this internal use of the law has to take place yeah that with the the internally like we see ourselves as convicted yeah. 
Yeah. I, well, yeah, I think that that's exactly. I mean, yeah. So when we talk about the law, it always is going to have these three functions. It's always going to be a curb, a mirror, and a guide. Mm-hmm. But as Christians, we recognize that the mirror isn't against the new man, but against the old. And I'm okay. in agreement with that. That's part and parcel of every morning forming my conscience, so that when I do transgress, notice I didn't say if. <laughs> Nobody makes it through the day. When I do transgress, my conscience recognizes it and accuses me. There's still a sense in which, at the end of the day, I plead guilty of all sins. Because I don't even know what I've done. Who am I to say my conscience? St. Paul says the same thing, you know. Um, I don't know of anything in myself that is sinful right now, but that does not mean I'm thereby acquitted. Um, there's There's a higher judge and one who's perfectly informed where my conscience may not be. It's just that I have a clean conscience right now. Um, so, yeah, the, to, to, I, I don't intend to take anything away from the second use, and it's ongoing. In fact, if the law's there, that use is functioning. It's just important for us to realize that it's functioning in keeping with the will of the new man against the sin that is active within me, leading me to despair of myself and be saved by Christ and him alone, yeah. um, I'm, even though I'm trying to increase in personal righteousness, I'm never reliant upon that righteousness. I'm never self-congratulatory about that righteousness, and I'm never away from the reality that that law condemns me even as it's instructing my conscience. So, yeah, no problem there. Hopefully I've articulated that in a way that makes sense within our more frequently used Lutheran yeah. categories. Okay. Yeah, it's a good point. Okay, well, we are coming, uh, we've got three minutes left. Let me see. Let's start in on an evil conscience. I think we can get a little ways. A second danger is an evil conscience, that is a conscience that accuses us where it should not. This is the same as the overbearing conscience before. Um, Sometimes uh, in the history of the church called scrupulosity, The second danger is an evil conscience, a conscience that accuses where it should not. And it usually doesn't stop with us. It goes to our neighbors, too, condemning them for all kinds of things that God has left them free to do. The devil knows law and gospel, and he perfectly confuses them to give us an evil or bad conscience. Here's how it works. When we are tempted, the devil preaches a false gospel to us, easing the path to sin. The devil tries to grease the skids for sin by preaching the kindness or indifference of God. We're all sinners. Christ died to take away all sins. He knows if you sin, it's already forgiven. Yeah, God wants you to be happy. God understands all of these things, right? Yeah. He uh, or it's God's fault. He's held out on you, (laughs) so he'll. So he certainly gets this and understands this. Yeah, and so forth. All right, continuing with Wolf Mueller. He minimizes sin. Satan minimizes sin. Don't worry, God doesn't get mad. No one will be hurt. God wants you to be happy. Then after we sin, the devil comes with the law, accusing our conscience before God. There's his little reversal. Where were you two seconds ago? You call yourself a Christian? Look what you did. You knew you were sinning, and still you kept on doing it. You're a disgrace. And then here he'll quote all the passages from the scriptures that utterly destroy you. you know. The result of this deceptive preaching of the devil is an evil conscience. A conscience in which the law and gospel are confused. 
Like a calloused conscience, an evil conscience cannot hear the instruction and prohibitions of the law properly. Even more, an evil conscience cannot hear the gospel in its comforting certainty. The evil conscience is weighed down with guilt and shame and is distorted with uncertainty and fear. So the way I think of this is like, sin is, it, when the devil gets you to sin, it's not just the sin itself he's after. It's not like, haha, okay, got Rody to be lazy this afternoon. Um, done. You know, going to go fishing. No, 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 no. As soon as you fall into the temptation and commit sin, that's when the game really begins. Because now he's going to wrench you in these different ways of like impenitence or despair. And he's going to push on you based on your personality and your psychology and your place in life and what other things are going on. And that's where the real game is for your soul to wrench you free from God, to wrench you free from faith in God. Okay, so that, I think that that's kind of what Wolf Mueller is articulating here with the evil conscience is once he gets you to sin, he immediately plays accuser. And then from there, he tries to do his real damage. It's where falling into sin, you have to be on guard because as, as soon as you've done it, you want to repent, be forgiven, and be on guard because what's coming next, it's like you played the ante in the big poker game, what's coming next is the hand. And that, again, is like you can see why Luther speaks so glowingly of going to a pastor for private confession absolution because a pastor can help you with that to recognize objectively what's going on. All right, so a little further, Jesus has medicine for an evil conscience. His sin, forgiving death, and resurrection. Our Lord Jesus delivers his forgiveness to sinners through our baptism, through the preaching of the gospel, and through the Lord's Supper. The forgiveness of sins makes an evil conscience good. The Lord's mercy cleanses the conscience and makes it pure. Since we have a great priest, Jesus Christ, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 21 through 22. It is especially the gift of the absolution that fights an evil conscience. We stand before our pastor and say, look, this sin is really, really bad and it troubles me. Can this sin be forgiven? The absolution answers, yes, I forgive you all your sins. The promise of the gospel undoes an evil conscience and gives us a bold, good, forgiven one. Yeah, and I would say it does across the categories, uh, and then the law forms it. And part of what a pastor is going to do if you come and confess is he's going to try to sort out for you, um, like, okay, so um, what effect is this sin having? Obviously, you're here, so you're penitent, um, but what, what kinds of things are going on in your heart and in your mind and in your soul as you reckon with this, right? And that's where a pastor is going to be able to help you. And the law does have a place there in terms of sorting and sifting this out. So it's not just the pastor's personal opinion he's giving you, but from an objective, disinterested kind of standpoint, I mean, unbiased standpoint, he's able to help you with grasp hold of the law so that your conscience is not only healed by the absolution, but then rightly formed by the law. So I think Wolfmuller and I are saying the same thing, it's just in a different way. All right, um, 
Yeah, last, uh, last but not least in this section, let's, um, let's look at uh, the last, uh, last couple paragraphs. Oh, we're over time. I better stop. Next, next week, we'll, um, we'll just touch on this, and then we'll go into a counterfeit conscience. And, um, and then we, t- we touched just a little on suffering, which we've done before, and that's the end of the chapter. So, hope this is uh, valuable to you. The Lord be with you.